0: Foster, Foster Care, Care Nation, Nation. Listen, up. Listen up this is
1: Foster Care
0: and On Parad Journey Strength for the powerless, courage for the fearful, hope and healing for wounded hearts. back to foster care and unparalleled journey with jason and amanda and today we have a special co-host he is coming in at about what eight months old yep almost nine. yeah yeah he's about eight months old almost nine months old and so if you hear a little bit of noise in the background today we have our godson here today and so you're just gonna have to deal with some baby noises if you want to listen to this one he's a pretty quiet kid don't worry he doesn't scream a lot but We brought on our special co-host and a special guest all at the same time. This is a a monumentous occasion for us here. We have never had our our little co-host and we've never really talked to Dan on here before. Although after I got to meet him a bit on LinkedIn, I'm pretty certain we should have been talking to him for a while. Dan has a wealth of information and experience and we wanted him to share it with us today. How are you doing today, Dan? I am doing wonderful, Jason. Thank you so much. Okay, man. I, I found you somewhere online. I don't remember if I reached out to you or you reached out to me, but after we got to talking and I was like, I don't know how we haven't run across each other before. Cause man, our stories have some interesting inter- intersections, but some real differences as well. And you are super passionate about kids.
1: I certainly am. Yeah. We have six, six adopted special needs children.
0: Six adopted special needs children. Um, I'm almost tempted to pull the card that I hate it when people do to me and say, there's a special place in heaven for people like you. <laughs> oh. but, I mean, that's, I know I get it, I get it, right? Yeah, It's not a special place in heaven, It's, but there's a special place in this world because man, you're obviously living out of passion. You're living out of your heart and not out of out of somewhere else. You're helping kids who really need help doing the job that most people are afraid to do. So number one, is when I just wanna off the bat say, you're amazing. And what you guys are doing is amazing, and and we w- would love to hear your story today. So you you got into foster care and adoption today, but if we rewind that all the way back, you've got more of a story behind all that, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So yeah. how did you start into that into the foster care world? What was your first step in?
1: Well, my first step in was a uh, a home in Vermont. It was a foster home where. My two other brothers and I grew up, and I was in that home from age two to five. And during that stay, we were often beaten, tied down. I know I remember my foster dad backing me into a corner and telling me that I was nothing but a piece of shit, and I wouldn't amount to anything in life. And uh, it was uh, quite a tumultuous time.
0: That's a good reason to be put into a foster home, not something that would happen there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think they definitely were one of those foster homes that people say are in it for the money because there was four other children besides us that were there. So, and then the hall showed up and I learned real quick how to self market myself. I, uh, I, I knew I needed help. I knew I needed to get out, out of that house. And so I whipped it out and I peed all over the wall. And
0: <laughs> that sounds like a marketing technique. That's kind yeah. of
1: brand new. Yep. And, uh, you know, somebody asked me, well, can you write your name now? <laughs> <laughs> so they, um, Maggie, uh, Maggie Hall and Jerry Hall, Maggie, uh, thought that I needed the most help. Of course, I was the first one she saw. So, and they could only take one, so they ended up taking me when I was five, and they would adopt me two years later. Wow. So that was my uh, my introduction to the foster care environment, what the uh, bad looks like, and uh, to what uh, the halls you know, eventually did for me, so.
0: Now, did you have other siblings in foster care with you?
1: Two other, uh, two other brothers. One was about a year and a half younger than I was, so he was the one that was being tied down quite a bit. He was tied down into his crib. And uh, my older brother, his name is Ted, and my older brother, Dave, who just passed away this last year um, of stage four glioblastoma, brain cancer. And uh, so we were in that foster home together, and they never got adopted. They were always just shuffled through the system.
0: Were you able to keep a relationship with them, even though you were moved
1: and adopted? I never understood that I was adopted. Well, I understood that I was adopted, but I didn't really know I had other brothers. At age two to five, there's so much trauma there, and it's hard to really understand what's going on. Uh, and didn't really understand that they were my brothers. I thought it was just other kids that were in the house. So when I turned 16, my oldest brother Rick showed up on the Halls' doorstep, and he he knocked on the door, and I answered the door. My parents, my my the Halls said, you know, go answer the door, see who it is. And my brother Rick opened the door, and he said, "I'm your brother." I was just like, "Wait, what?" And just completely floored that they all lived within 30 miles of me and I had no clue, no clue that they were around. And uh, so my, and Rick had planned this out with, with the halls, Maggie and Jerry. And so, you know, they, they, he basically had their blessing that, you know, I could go back and meet my biological family And they 100% supported that. So it was, it was, it was interesting. And Dave, Dave uh, would eventually become my best friend. My only best friend in life, my biological brother, Dave.
0: Wow. That's, I mean, what a blessing that, that they were willing to allow your biological family back into your life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were, we were placed there because my, biological mom had uh, had died of brain cancer and my there was five of us so I have an older sister as well biological older sister and he couldn't take care of all of us and having to take care of a, uh, a one-year-old two and a a half year old and a four-year-old was tough for a single dad back in the 70s oh yeah yeah it's
0: yeah. a lot I mean, I'm not going to lie. I don't remember much of the seventies. Um, <laughs> I, I was, I, I was only a couple of years old when that, when that all came to an end, but you know, that I know that time frame. it was, there was not the idea of a single stay at home dad in the, in the world. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. So, you know, your brother shows up and knocks on the door and, and you start to walk to that journey of reconnecting with your family what did that do for you to find that you had like biological siblings that you weren't even really aware of out there? Did that help you really create that identity that, that you maybe were missing? I don't know. Were you missing that identity?
1: Oh, it confused the hell out of me. It really just confused the hell out of me. Um, We uh, I wanted to know so much about them, but when I started to peel away the layers, it was like, you know these people are kind of more of acquaintances to me than family it just didn't you know i spent some holidays there and it just it, it it was it wasn't home it wasn't you know there was more chaos in that area than you know it was great at first but i really wanted to i knew that me being with the Halls was where I, where I belonged. And, uh, it was great to, to, to know where everything started and where I grew up, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm just so thankful that the Halls adopted me.
0: Sounds like you're really able to find your, your true identity with your adoptive family.
1: 100% correct on that, Jason.
0: Did you ever have the opportunity to go back and, and reconnect with your father, with your birth father?
1: When my brother died, yeah, we, well, I've known that he's uh, known where he lives, know, knew his phone number, but never just wanted to call up and say, hey, pop, how you doing? It's just, I always felt like he should have been the one that if he really wanted to stay connected that he should have made the effort to, to reach out to me. And uh, it wasn't until after my brother Dave passed that I actually called him and, you know, just he, and that's when I found out why he gave us up for adoption. So it was great to have closure, great just to close the loop on all those unknown feelings of why, and uh, just be able to Be happy with the answer and to be able to move on.
0: Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family. Anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. Now back to the show. So many men I know struggle with that father wound. And you know, in full disclosure, I say this all the time. I didn't really have a whole lot of that. Me and my dad got along great. (laughs) But I do know a lot of men who struggle with that, that absence of a father without having that presence in their life. And that father wound runs deep. How were you able to heal that in your in your life?
1: My dad, my adopted dad was such a great dad. <clears throat> and I say that, but it took me 40 years to realize that. And uh, I remember Tina asking me, you know, do you want to adopt? Do you want to have you know, you want to foster or adopt? And I'm like, oh, hell no, not going to happen. I don't <laughs> want to, I do not want to have to parent a child like I was growing up. I was a holy terror. And uh, we had our first two placements, two little girls. And lo and behold, I, f- I saw myself for the first time in my life through their eyes. I saw the behaviors the lying and the stealing, everything that comes with that trauma. And I just called up my dad. It was the first time I really appreciated what my adopted mom and dad had done for me. And I called up my dad and I said, Dad, I am so sorry that I always thought you were a hard ass on me. And I said, I understand now you were only trying to give me structure. And I told him he was my hero. And it was the first time that I heard my dad actually break down in tears. So he was more of a dad to me and he filled me up with all those feelings that a dad should. And he helped me become the man that I am today. And it was easier to get past knowing from my biological dad what had happened because I had already had that dad figure in my life filling that void so there was really no void to to fill there if that makes sense
0: oh yeah yeah that's amazing i mean i think one of the parts of foster care and adoption that gets overlooked a lot and that's the foster dad side and we'll talk about this since amanda just walked off with a little guy because i think she's going to go try and put him to sleep and I think this is something that we see a lot. You hear about foster care and you think you hear about foster moms. You don't hear a whole lot about foster dads, about guys who, who have that on their heart to help kids. Yeah. And you're one of those guys who came out of that. You had somebody reach into your life and give you a place of support and fill some of those holes. And now you're doing it for other kids. That's one of the things that I think we, we don't talk about very often, but what you're doing is creating that. And and we talked before we hit the record button here, and I wrote it down because I know I can't remember. It means you have a five-year-old girl, an eight-year-old boy, a 10-year-old boy, an 11-year-old girl, um, a 17-year-old girl, and a 20-year-old girl, right? Yeah. And as much as we talk about dads, dads and, and their sons, I mean, Dad's and their daughters are such an important part,
1: oh absolutely, and our youngest is attached to my hip <laughs> she's dad she's daddy's girl yeah.
0: yeah you don't you don't look proud of that at all
1: oh, no, not <laughs> at all,
0: <laughs> but I mean, can you imagine what you're doing for these kids and what that's going to do for their kids and their kids after them to to have had? a good upbringing that started with a strong male role model that'll help them step into life with some, some real good perspective that a lot of kids, let's be honest, foster care, or not regular bio families. A lot of young ladies do not grow up with a healthy male role model in their life. And they struggle a- with those problems for an eternity.
1: You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And uh, you know, I'm thankful. So thankful for my wife, Tina. Who just helps me navigate all the behaviors, all the traumas. And tell you, I'll, I'll share a little story about our son, Isaiah. When he was two, I would scream. He would scream. I didn't understand fetal alcohol at all. And I didn't understand what he needed. And one day Tina turned to me, she was pretty upset with me. And she told me, you need to start listening with more than just your ears. I just lost it. I completely just lost it because I knew what she meant. And the next day I learned sign language. I started picking up sign language and I started teaching it to Isaiah. And within a couple months, he was doing more please and thank you. He was communicating with me and I could understand and it filled me up so much. And I realized up until I met Tina that I honestly didn't give a shit about anybody in life. I didn't give a shit. I didn't care. I didn't care if somebody died. I mean, I would go through the motions, but I honestly didn't really care. And I talk about that. I used to train inbound foster parents and I would tell them, you know, up until my my wife saved me, you know, she honestly saved me. She taught me how to love. She taught me how to feel. She, she just has this way of bringing out the best in you. It's almost like she can reach right in and touch your soul. And she does that for our kids and she does it for me. She finds the best in me and she's helped me to understand that it's those small things in life that really are the most important. We always say here in our house, go small or go home, not go big. Because it's uh, for us being, you know, in foster care, being uh, having adopted children and any children for that matter, those small victories are priceless. Just to see a smile on a kid's face is, it it fills me up now. My son Parker might run in, you know, in a little bit. I don't get all worked up because I'm on a podcast or on a live stream. I'm, I'm happy because he's coming down. He's checking in with me and he's filling his bucket and he's filling mine at the same time. And our girls do that too. They want to, they want to check in. And it's so important for, for us as parents to check in and for them, they are my heroes. I don't, I know my, my dad was a hero to me but they're honestly my heroes. They saved me by having the opportunity to be a parent for them. They, they saved me. They helped me understand who I was as a person,
0: so. Yeah, we talk a lot about figuring out how to heal through the trauma in your own childhood. And I mean, it's obvious that you've had some trauma in your childhood, I, you, you've described some of it already and most of us don't realize that we've all had some level of, of trauma in our own childhood but finding somebody who can who can work through your mess with you oh man that's 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 priceless
1: it is it is and and you know it it helps me to want to learn so much more about what they're going through so i can help them cope and along with with Tina and be a united front in the way that we parent our kids. Lay, like, look, I don't always get it right. You know, i tend to be sometimes the biggest kid in the house, but and sometimes I need a good talking too. But
0: it, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the only one that's good.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, finding finding that, you know, usually helps to to reframe a lot of the things that we've grown up with. Uh, we, we talked about your, your dad. What about your, your mom, you know, your adoptive mom? Was that a close relationship for you? That was
1: the closest relationship for me because, you know, growing up and thinking my dad was always a hard ass. There has to be some balance to that. And Maggie was that balance. Uh, when my dad, my dad just passed this December of uh, dementia. He's, took a bad fall in the, the home he was in. And uh, I went back through, I was looking through, back through one of my yearbooks and my mom had written in there. And she always, she she's like Tina. She always found, she always finds the, she, she found the best in people. And she wrote in there, don't ever dwell on all your failures or your successes. Be who you are and be happy with what you become in life. So she was always the balance to my dad. So there may have been the rough edge of my dad, but my mom was always there to help me understand the the other side of what compassion looked like, what empathy looked like, what trust looked like. I mean, I trusted my mom and dad, so the trust thing wasn't really about those, but it was a balance for me. And they both provided that
0: yeah it's great to have a good mother and father role because i mean i don't care what common culture says today about the world today but a a solid figure that can you know help you a two-parent household where you have two different humans who are trying to take care of you they tend to to run the yin and the yang of of the situation and and help you understand where to be in those hard moments, whether it's the moment that you need somebody to, to maybe kind of give you a little extra boot and say, let's go, let's go do this. Or somebody who looks at you and says, Hey man, this is a tough time. Let's go talk about it. And it sounds, absolutely, yeah, you found that in, 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 uh, your adoptive parents and that makes a huge difference in a kid's life. And I would just go ahead and guess, I know the answer to this already, but I would assume that that has a lot to do with where you're at today in life,
1: absolutely, absolutely, especially the fact that I can see so much of my mom in Tina, and I tell her that frequently. They said, "You so much like my mom, and that's a huge compliment to her and, and
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. i am <laughs> that's not the sort of thing most guys feel like they can say to their wife, yeah, yeah, well,
1: it's uh she's amazing. And, and as far as, and she's, she's a lot like my dad too, because I'm probably the one that gets uh, treated like the doormat most of the times. She, she definitely wears the pants in the family. Let's put it that way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's that whole masculine and feminine energy thing. And, and we all have to work through that in our own space and figure that out for ourselves. But you and your wife have been together for how long uh 15 years 15 years so you got a pretty good start going oh yeah sounds to me like you might you might have some plans of just leaving it that way for the long term
1: it is it's time for us to to focus on uh raising our children
0: well how how old were you guys when you when you met each other
1: Oh, gosh. 15 years ago, I was what 35. Yeah, 35, 36. And she was just turning 30. Okay. Okay. I I just realized maybe that's why she always says she's 29. Maybe she's regretting. No. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. So you guys, I mean, you weren't like super young when you started having kids. I mean, Amanda and I, when we first got together, she had a a son from from a previous relationship where dad had kind of just bounced. And so we got together and we just had a kid to start with. And pretty quickly, we had a second kid and we were not that far off of 20 yet. You know, I think I was 22 and she might've actually been 20. So you guys have plenty of time to kind of begin to find yourselves as you walked into that relationship and, and then walked into the the world of adoption and foster care and all that was that was a adoption and foster care, a conversation that you guys had at the beginning of your, when you guys first got together.
1: Yeah, it was. And my response to Tina at the, at that time was, I'm not going to adopt and I'm not going to foster because I don't want to have to parent a child like I was growing up because my mom and dad always told me I was a holy terror and I didn't want to have any holy terrors in the house.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but the holy terrors tend to be the most fun too.
1: Yeah. And it was the holy terrors that taught me a lot about myself. So I'm definitely thankful for that.
0: So what was it do you think that put that on her heart that she wanted to, to be a part of that? She loves
1: working with kids. She's always loved working with kids. And uh, she, you know, some people like to figure things out. And for her, that's her passion. She likes to figure kids out, figure out what makes them tick, what makes them tick, what they're thinking about before they think about it. You know, just to have that, uh, that um, empathic skill of knowing.
0: So she's really good at that. Oh, sounds like a lot of curiosity at work. Yes,
1: absolutely is. Yes.
0: That's one of the skill sets I did not have when we first got kids. Um, well, like I said, I started when Amanda and I got together. We started with already having a kid, and I, I had it took a lot of years for me to learn how to really be tr- truly and genuinely curious about what was going on with them. Because I kind of grew up in a world where I would just make assumptions. Look, I said to do this. And if you're not doing that, it means you're being rebellious. And and I'm going to teach you. You're going to learn today. And we're going to you know, work through this. And you're going to learn how to listen, son. And you, you might know how well that works. Yeah, it doesn't. It
1: doesn't work for me today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I've tried that approach. It, it worked for a few years. It worked for a few years until my kids started to get older and and actually grow their own personality and their own thought processes and that sort of thing. And suddenly it didn't work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It gets old for them. So I had to learn to be curious at that point and try to figure out what in the world was going on with them. How was, how did that work for you? Did you have a similar journey?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. Say that again, Jason.
0: That's if you have one. a similar journey as far as having to figure out how to be curious.
1: In regards to the children?
0: Yeah. as to What's going on in their life and, and why they are acting the way they're acting. Why they may be acting out in certain ways that doesn't seem to make sense to you. Got it. Got it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, the, uh, our first placements of our two girls a lot of the behaviors i understood a little bit about it but reactive attachment disorder was completely new to us we had no training on that which is why i became a trainer uh a co-trainer with our local dss for inbound foster parents because we had no training on what some of these uh, uh some of these disorders were like reactive attachment or dissociative identity disorder, anything like that. So trying to navigate and figure out that your kids have no empathy, they have a complete lack of trust, and they have a complete cause and effect. They have no cause and effect thinking just completely floored me. I remember our daughter, the day before she got adopted, she's like, I don't give a shit if you guys die tomorrow. That's exactly what she told us. And we adopted her and she graduated high school last year at age 20.
0: Wow. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Red was a new one for us when we had a couple kids who were, uh, well, one of them was diagnosed Rad. The other one was about a year too young for them to be willing to give a diagnosis. But I'm going to say yeah. they probably found the same thing with both kids. And Red's one of those things that we've interviewed a couple people who've dealt with it. And in the episode we, we had with Cheryl Rougeau, her and her husband had adopted a young girl, and man, that one turned out really difficult. Really, yeah, you know, it just didn't turn out well for them. As a family, they spent all kinds of time, energy, blood, sweat, tears, and money trying to figure out how to work it out, and they never could find a good solution for that particular girl. Um, yeah. After, after she'd been, you know, tried killing her sister, had been killing animals, and tried to burn the house down a couple times in the middle of the night um they eventually had to had to to revoke the forget what they call it um revoke the adoption there's a term for it and i forget what it is at the moment but they eventually had to go that route and we talked to gina human as well just a little bit ago and gina had a a different story They, they adopted a little boy from from Bolivia. I don't know. I'm going to get it wrong because it was a foreign country whose name I don't remember terribly. I don't hear it in the news very often. Yeah. So and it started with a B. Was it Bahrain? uh, No, I believe it was in South America somewhere. Gotcha. But that you know, he came to them, and they found out later that he had rad as well. And she talked about their journey through that. Her and her husband going through that journey and helping him through that. And today, while he still has rad, he's really well modulated on that on a uh, particular disorder now and he's getting somewhere in life he's becoming somebody who's going to make a difference in the world that and, is
1: am- that's amazing
0: yeah yeah and um Gina Human is she has a TEDx talk where she talks about red and it's just an amazing story but those those stories are so wild and so varied in the way that they they turn out because we don't know a whole lot about it
1: Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that uh, most of your inmates in prison have some type of medium to severe reactive attachment disorder because they lack the empathy, they lack the ability to trust, and they lack the cause and effect thinking.
0: Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook, and you can find us at facebook.com groups slash We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. And I think that was part of what was difficult for me was understanding that that what you said is exactly right. They lack the ability. It's yeah. not a desire to do things. And that's the only reason they do it. It's usually because it's, they really physically cannot. Their brain has been traumatized. And then that trauma was rewired in a way that we don't necessarily understand. And they cannot. It's not a choice of don't want to. It's a matter of cannot. And we have to figure out how to deal with that as a society because, I mean, let's face it, we're either going to deal with these kids in in foster care, in, in adoption, and in the struggles in the youth juvenile facilities, or in the prison system, or maybe we go back to that whole foster care adoption area and we figure out how to work our way through that and get these kids the help they need to at least have the best fighting chance they can so that they, they don't end up in the prison system.
1: Absolutely. And um, I worked with uh, Jane Ryan. I don't know if you're familiar with Jane Ryan. I don't Um, think I know the name. She she wrote a book called The Border. Okay. And um, Broken Spirits Lost Souls. And uh, she uh, did a movie uh, two or three years ago. I I created the movie poster for it. And I'm trying to remember the actor's name. It's Andy and i'll remember it probably by the end of the the podcast but he had reactive attachment disorder she had him she andy had wanted to play the boy he had been through he was adopted from a foreign country he had rad but he just wanted to play this part so bad and jane was like no not gonna happen And he kept writing, he kept writing to her, and eventually, he played the part in the movie, and the movie is about reactive attachment disorder. Um, Lifetime ran it, Lifetime Movie Channel ran it uh, a couple of, two or three years back, maybe it was around 2015, but they rebranded it as the Troubled Child. And... it was just amazing and she she came out actually to maryland uh and met us and she showed the movie out here and it was just just she was just a wealth of knowledge and she helped us understand a lot about reactive attachment disorder
0: so when Um, you do trainings with foster inbound foster parents how do you how do you help them understand this so that it's something that they, they can actually handle
1: we 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 give them some uh help them with some coping mechanisms um, we help them understand what rad is and not only rad but like dissociative identity disorder um and we we're we basically i say we because my my wife talks to you know what she talks as well we help them understand what the good and the bad and the ugly looks like of fostering and adopting uh, through our journey through reactive attachment disorder, through fetal alcohol, and we give them some some really good coping skills uh, to to co- take away from the training.
0: Okay, okay. We talked with um, Heather. Um, I think we just left her name as Heather for some privacy issues on a, on an episode. I think it was yeah. called Surviving and out of foster care and Heather Heather was a a young girl who was who had fetal alcohol syndrome Mm -hmm. she had a lot of complications in her life you know up till the day she's still working through it and doing a great job but still working through a lot of that with fetal alcohol syndrome and you mentioned dissociative identity disorder and that one the little bit that I know about that one that one's kind of wild I I, I, there's a podcast and I, I have zero connection with it although I love it it's called, um, this is actually happening. And he has an episode that's called, what if you had dissociative identity disorder? So I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to this one. And I'll warn anybody listening. If you're going to listen to that one, do it without kids in the room, do it yeah. when you have time to really process it, because she details the trauma, the absolute horrible trauma that she went through. And I mean, her parents sold her as a young child time and again, and it, it was a really horrible experience, but she details experience through dissociative identity disorder and um i I probably would not do it justice how would you explain like what that looks like to a to a foster parent if they saw that coming into their house sure
1: so imagine yourself and we've all done this driving a car you drive and the the drive is just so mundane that you zone out for about maybe five or 10 minutes. And then you realize that you're zoning out and you come back and you're like, how did I just get from 10 minutes ago to here and being safe? When you have that disorder, and that's exactly what happens with dissociative identity disorder is because the trauma is happening kids will generally just check out and they won't remember that part of the journey. So if you think about checking out on a car drive, like a lot of us do, um, that's what, that's what it looks like. And that's why you can't remember. You can't remember how you got from that part of the road to the next part of the road, because you've completely checked out. And with trauma like that, they check out and they don't remember how they got there. And that's the one therapist, she's an amazing therapist, described it that way. And I understood it clearly then what, at a high level, what it was. And um, we used to sit with our our 17-year-old, and I used to listen to her talking to herself. Hey, how are you today? Oh, I'm good, I'm good. And it was just the voices. It was the freakiest thing. Didn't understand what was going on, but it just kept on going, and there was different voices all the time. Uh, we never got her completely diagnosed with it, but the therapist that we saw for rad also knew a lot about DID, and she said it sounds like that. So she started her journaling, so bring these to bring all these personalities together, and through her journaling, and she's an amazing young girl right now. She's just man, she she's run all kinds of electrical wiring, you know, in the house. And she's just wow. Just completely blows me away how far we've come with her.
0: Oh yeah, it sounds like it. We talked with uh Frank King here a while back and, and he's he's uh he talks a lot about suicidal ideation and that sort of thing because he's a comedian and so you would put suicide and comedians together, right? But that's something that, you know, he is a comedian, he's dealt with suicidal ideation for a long time. He's got a lot of research under his belt, he's learned a lot about it. And one of the things he talks about is how some of these different disorders and diseases can actually give you some of your own superpowers. They can really give you an ability. It's not always doesn't always have to be some sort of a handicap. Sometimes it comes along with it that you, you can build these amazing abilities. How have you seen that work out with with your kids?
1: I think my, uh, it's, <laughs> the abilities, I wouldn't call them superpowers for me. I just call it, uh, I think my wife Tina has the superpowers that she kind of just educates me on what she does. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, it's it's really, and I go back to saying this, for me, it's not a superpower, Maybe it is, but what she told me when Isaiah was, you know, screaming and I was screaming, you know, listen with more than just your ears and it's amazing what you can see and listen with your heart, close your eyes and, you know, don't even look, just listen and then plug your ears and just look at what you're seeing. And it's just that to me is one of the biggest abilities that she has got me to understand how to do. And I think if I had a superpower, I, that would be my superpower would be to be able to listen with more than just my ears.
0: You know, I've got, we've got several kids and our kids don't have any specific diagnoses mostly because, um, There's nothing severe enough in our house that we felt the need to go get a diagnosis for necessarily, but I'm certain we could find it if we wanted to. I mean, there's plenty of post-traumatic stress in the house. And I would look at it though and say like, I've got a little guy who is, I mean, this kid is off the charts wild some days, (laughs) you know, but at the same time, this kid's also a blast. Yeah. Until you've met a kid like this who will... By the end of the day, you will be worn out by his energy. <laughs> the thing is, is when he wakes up in the morning, if you go up and wake him up in bed and he wakes up and a smile spreads from ear to ear and he just starts laughing, this kid knows how to how to have joy in his heart. And that's something that, that I think comes out of his struggles is today he knows how to have joy because he didn't at one point. You know, and I think that's that's a superpower that I... I mean, I don't have that one. I promise. I get up for two o'clock at two o'clock in the morning to go to work. I do not wake up laughing ever, (laughs) ever. (laughs) But he's, that's who he is. You know, I have another kid who's, who's really super artistic with, with the way that he sees his world and he he pushes that art into the world. And a lot of that, I think came out of his own trauma and his own struggles. And I I watch these kids and I go, okay, yeah, they they have some struggles out of them. But, you know, you know, we've talked about what ODD, PTSD, RAD, um, autism, uh, all these different things. And at the end of the day, yeah, they have their struggles, but they they can also end up having their own advantages, too. And I think part of what my goal in life is to kind of identify what those those benefits are and really help them to, to find that the struggle that that is actually a benefit for them
1: absolutely absolutely and uh you know just uh, my my adopted parents the halls did that for me they my mom would drop me off at uh this is back in the 70s and you trusted a lot more people than you do today yeah she <laughs> yeah, would she, she would go to church and where i grew up in Castleton, vermont the college there they uh Casperland State College would allow kids from or people from the community to come in and use their computer center and their library. So at age eight, she would drop me off there, make sure I got in, and I stayed in there the whole time, and I would use their computers. So I started writing software when I was eight years old, and um, that turned out to be my passion and my love throughout my career. I write computer software, to this day and they helped me find something that i absolutely love to do and for me going to work is fun it's so much fun and they helped me find my superpower there and like you said with our kids it's finding and zoning in. it's so important to zone in to find something that they absolutely love to do and that's key for me and, and Tina, is to, to help them find their passion, help them find their superpower, as you would say. Um, and not an easy thing to do when you're trying to navigate, also navigate all the disorders and all, the, all the, the, the regular day-to-day stuff that comes with some of the amazing outcomes at the end of the day. Some of the things that start the day and then you look at the end of the day and you're like, wow, because through one day, things can change so much, but you realize how resilient it doesn't matter how much you think you failed in, in any given day. Um, and I, I tell this to people, if you, if you think you're a failure, you're not a failure because you show up every day, to show your kids how you can fail and how you can pick yourself up and you can keep going and keep going and you get knocked down. So you show them what that looks like. And then when they grow up and they turn 40 years old, like I did, they understand what failure looks like and they understand what an amazing journey looks like. And my kids are heroes. They they are undoubtedly heroes with many different superpowers, the ability to make you laugh, the ability to make you laugh until you cry, and the ability just to tear your heart out and wonder why somebody would do that to them before they came to
0: you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I've told this story before, but we had one particular little girl, she's not so little anymore, but when she first came to stay at our house, one, one evening we sat down for dinner and said, who would like to say blessing before dinner? And she says, I do, I do. And she folds her little hands and bows her little head. And she just says, dear God, thank you that my new mommy and daddy haven't died yet. Wow, wow. And yeah, sucked the air right out of the room. Cause I was busy feeling sorry for myself that day. I'd had a rough day at work whatever was going on and all of a sudden it's like god kind of just gut punched me and said oh yeah pay attention here pay attention you thought you had a bad day huh didn't you wow wow yeah and the ability they have to really just speak into our lives in ways that that the 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 most noted gurus, the people with all the books and all the knowledge and all the experience that everybody wants to listen to, you know, the Tony Robbins of the world, Tony Robbins could not have taught me that lesson any more effective way. Not at all. Because I learned real, real quick how it is to, to go ahead and shift your perspective into one that. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. you, You don't, you don't have a clue until you've,
1: you've really experienced it or you've you've lived through somebody lived with or through somebody that's experienced it,
0: yeah, because I mean even today she she's thirteen today and she's still with us, and yeah you know, thirteen year old girls don't always like think Dad's the most awesome guy in the world, understandably, I don't think I thought the same thing about my parents at thirteen, but today she is still an amazing young woman she's do it it's hard for me to say amazing young woman because I've known her since she was a little bitty. <laughs> you know, I was like, get older, you don't want to say that? No. No, she's still my little girl. Get away. Yeah, I was <laughs> a little girl. But it's th- those are the moments that you look back to and realize that, man, the wisdom of a toddler sometimes, especially these kids who have been through such hard times, who can really just speak into the world in a way that, that we couldn't do. They, they can speak into our lives and teach us so much if we have ears to hear
1: absolutely absolutely and uh my our youngest our 5 year old she was talking she's quite intelligent she's probably yeah, i think we clocked it at about when she was 2 she about had about 150 word vocabulary wow and yeah she's just blows me away blows both both of us away and she came up to me one day and she said daddy can I ask you? I'm like, what? Can I ask you? <laughs> and of course, our oldest one is using a lot of slang from high school. And Stad, can I ask you a question?
0: <laughs> so
1: she was trying to ask me a question. She's like, Daddy, I ax you. <laughs> so, yeah, I forgot where we were going with that, Jason. I'm sorry, but that was just whatever you were talking about just popped into my head. Must've been a squirrel moment for me. Sorry.
0: <laughs> I have squirrels run across my horizon all the time. Don't feel that. I'm certain if I was to go spend enough t- time and money somewhere, they'd eventually diagnose what it is in my head. that's not neurotypical. <laughs> the problem is I think they need a couple sheets of paper to print all that out. <laughs> or a ream for me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, these, these kids have that ability to speak into our lives. If, if we're willing to sit back and listen and I love what you said earlier, you know, listening with more than just your ears, because if nothing else, English is not our first language. It, you know, it, it isn't for any human. The first language we ever learned was body language, you know, just like little, our little godson over here who, who, you know, when he wants a bottle, trust me, he, he lets you know he wants a bottle and he does not say, excuse me, sir, but I'm kind of hungry. Can you give me a bottle of formula, please? <laughs> we learn to read that body language. He learns to speak that at a brand new little infant stage. And then we forget it. We've, we don't forget how to use it. We just forget that we use it. And yeah. with these kids, a lot of times, some of the biggest benefits I've, I've found is being able to step back and really pay attention to all the little parts and pieces of who they are, what their body language is, what their tone is like, and understand what's going on and stop and be genuinely curious and ask some questions. And suddenly you find out this kid who's being just a total pain in the butt today. He's going through some stuff. There's some yeah. old trauma and yeah. something triggered it. He's dealing with that. And suddenly this kid who I wanted to, to you know, pick him up and Homer choke him like, come on, stop being a butthead. I'm like, Oh, wait, <laughs> wait. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's sit down and have a, a real conversation.
1: And you, you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's, uh, it's putting your emotions aside And just like you said, having that ability to listen with more than just your ears is not easy sometimes because you get so emotional sometimes. And it's just having the ability to take the step back and say, wait, I know exactly what's going on. They're hungry or they're tired and they just don't know what to do with themselves. And Uh, Part of that is just exactly what you said. It's just understanding them and understanding what their needs are and understanding that if your child is calling you stupid or an idiot or a butthead, that there's something else going on. Exactly what you said, Jason.
0: Well, I learned that lesson because I've made that mistake more times than most. Yeah. You know, when I fail,
1: fail, 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 succeed. And it, 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 it it goes with you and that makes you who you are and it makes me who I am.
0: And it's the only way that we get to success. Yep. The only path to success I've ever found is through failure. Absolutely. And we have to get Zen with the fact that we're going to mess a lot of stuff up along the way. You got it. (laughs) Well, I, at least I assume everybody else has to do it the same way that I did. Yep.
1: Turned <laughs> <laughs> a lot of bridges growing up. Absolutely did.
0: Yeah. But but today, here we are, you know, and like I mentioned earlier, two dads. Two dads who have kids who, you know, may or may not be biologically related to you in your house, that you're you're looking at trauma, you're looking at problems. And one of the things that, for me, it really means a lot is the fact that I'm leaving a legacy on a daily basis. And I I don't know about you, but for me, that's, that's been one of the the real driving factors for me is that I'm leaving a legacy, whether I want to or not, you know, when the boat goes across the lake, it doesn't choose whether or not it leaves a wake behind it. It's going to be there. You just get to choose what, what that looks like. And it's the same way with legacy. You get to decide what your legacy is going to be. And I remind myself on a daily basis, probably many times a day, that in every moment, especially every moment with my kids, one of the things I'm doing is I'm writing an obituary. I'm writing mine. My kids are going to have a legacy that that they're going to leave behind them. And it's going to be really impacted by who their dad was and what I choose to do and who I choose to be. And has that legacy piece been... Something for you that's really important.
1: It has, and I'm going to 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 give you a little story about uh, my my legacy is reciprocal kindness, you know. Just and that was evident, I believe, for the first time when we adopted. Uh, we went down and we adopted. We didn't adopt. We were trying to get custody. Of our last placement, Bella, who was a uh, sibling of three other children in our home, she was she's basically kinship and a great niece. And my daughter, who was seven at the time, had to get up on the stand. And the judge asked her um, for first. You know, did she understand what lying and and telling the truth was and stuff? And he asked her, what do you want for Christmas? And she's like, I don't want any toys. I just want my little sister to come home with me. And at seven years old, the kindness that was in her heart that day. Man. Man. We knew, both knew there wasn't a dry eye in that courtroom that day. But we walked out of there, and there's a whole story behind. We fought Florida for a year. And our daughter, when she went out of that courtroom, said, Mommy, I did all the heavy lifting today, didn't I? And (laughs) Tina was like, she cried. And she's like, yeah, you did. You did an amazing job. And I just see that kindness in all my children. They have their days. Gosh, we have our days as parents. And just, I want to give back to the world. And I, you know, just what was given to me, the chance that the halls gave to me. I want to be able to teach our kids, and my wife and I want to be able to teach our kids what kindness looks like. And to me, that's what I want to be remembered for, is to be able to reciprocate kindness.
0: That sounds like an amazing legacy to leave. Most men that I know don't have an intentional legacy that they want to leave behind. And from what I can see, you guys are not only have that figured out, but you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I know you have an amazing story with with trying to to get your your daughter Bella to your home. You know, can can you run through that? Sure, sure. So,
1: like I said, we have we had um, Olivia, Isaiah, and Parker. Olivia, we got we got from Florida at eight months, um, and this is my great niece was the was the biological mother. And I'm going to say biological mother because that was the rub that prevented us from getting Isabella. So we got Olivia at eight months. Isaiah, we got at nine weeks. Parker at seven weeks after they were born. We were right there. We knew they were going to be born. We communicated with DCF and said, we want to be a resource. We want to be a resource. Well, when Isabella was born, we had done the same thing. And I don't really know why Florida put up such a fight. I can only speculate that, and please don't get me wrong, we have lesbian and gay friends, uh, great friends. And in Florida that year, I think it was 2016, they just passed the law to allow um, LBGT LBGT couples to be able to have the ability to adopt. And don't know for sure, but I think that may have had something to do with it. And the fact that I'm going back to saying biological mom because Tina and Olivia went down to court. Um, I think this was May of 2016. And Tina said the term bio mom, and for some reason, it just pissed off the judge. Why? She was so floored that Tina was calling her bio mom. And Tina tried to explain that, hey, look, Olivia knows that she's adopted. We have a video of her when she was three. She's like, I grew in mommy and daddy's hearts and I grew in, in Christy's belly, who was her bio mom. And we have always explained to her that's her bio mom. So Tina was using terminology that Olivia could understand Olivia was there in the courtroom. But well, that just set a whole different path, set us on a whole different path. The judge was so mad that she offered, and this was, it wasn't even six months into, uh, into the placement, she asked the foster parents if they wanted to adopt. And we were like, what? And so uh, there on after that pursued a year long legal battle of trying to get Isabella in her home. And two more court appearances down in Florida, hiring a lawyer, and being denied every single time down in Florida to be able to have visitations. Uh, Olivia was denied twice to be able to visit with her sister, Isabella. So, and that video that I sent you and catalogs our journey. And even the Dr. Phil show at one point, asked us if we'd be interested in, in discussing the journey. And we opted out for that because we didn't want to put the kids through it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you guys went through quite a journey just to be able to, to get there. I mean, make sure that the obvious bow is still put on it. She's in your house today, right? She, she, he's in our
1: house today and she is just, I think the, sometimes the energy that fuels the fire, and sometimes she's the energy that just makes you laugh until you cry. <laughs> <laughs> I have one of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, she's just uh, she's an amazing soul. And there's one thing I wanted to say about Bella. Um, I just I'll, I'll remember it here. But...
0: You know, <sighs> keeping those biological siblings together is such an important thing. Do you think that that was, that was maybe fueled by your own lack of having been given that as a kid.
1: I'm not sure. You know, we were even afraid to tell Florida that I was adopted. And that was because that would have, that would have not made Isabella our biological, our biological, um, great niece. We were so afraid to tell Florida that I was adopted, which was sad. And finally, you know, we, we contacted um, the um, ombudsman down in Florida and they put us with a worker. I think she was from um, DCF. I'm, I forget. Uh, Juanita White was her name and she was pulling up all our paperwork and she's like what is going on here you guys should have her by now and she kept looking and looking and that's when we hired a lawyer and they had a whole i don't know how many people were in that room that day but they they went around and they kept asking us questions and i think there was like maybe 20 people in the room of why why did we think that we didn't have her and you know how much money I made and all this stuff and at the end of the day you know we got a call back from Juanita and it's like nobody can understand why you don't have her why you don't have Isabella and you know it's just it still plagues me to this day but we're very grateful for Miss Juanita who now is their kind of adopted grandmother, because when nobody else would listen, she did. (laughs) And she, she kept all the siblings together.
0: That's, that's great. You know, there's, there's a few angels in this world who are there to, to help us along. And, you know, just as part of my own story, one of the things I've learned is, you know, we, we lost our daughter and that was, that was a hard time and it took me years to figure this out, but where I would never have, traded her for anything obviously but in every dark moment there's a little piece of light that comes out of it and whether you're a spiritual person or not you believe it's a universe or it's god or it's just happenstance if you go through those hard times there's almost always something that you can take out of it and in this world i would say that that the daniel hall who's sitting here talking to me today would have maybe a different story or less of a story, maybe not be the advocate he is if he hadn't walked through that. So it may be a blessing in disguise that you guys walk through such a journey.
1: I have no regrets, no regrets whatsoever on my life. If I did, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I wouldn't have six amazing children. Um, and I have to add that I do have a biological son from another marriage, Ethan, that you know give a huge shout out to him because he's an amazing young man and uh so I I definitely don't want to leave him out but uh yeah no we absolutely no regrets in my life and I think that's what it winds up being is just being happy with with who I turned out to be
0: and an amazing legacy to leave behind because you've done so much of it in the public eye, so much of it, you know, you have journaled and, and video journaled and and will be something that's seen by many generations to follow. Absolutely. I believe I believe that everything maybe that really does happen for a reason. I just don't think we always understand or appreciate that reason in the moment. Absolutely not. I can detest to that. That's absolutely right, Jason. <laughs> yeah, I've struggled through those moments myself. And And I can see from the other side of some of those moments, the benefit that can come out of it. If I was willing to, if I was willing to walk that journey and keep my eyes open and have a, have a spirit to, to pay attention to what I can do to make the world a better place.
1: Reflection is an amazing thing. If you're willing to, to, to take it on.
0: Well, I appreciate you coming here and and telling us your story today, Daniel. I mean, you've got, you've got so much experience to, to share with people. And if they want to reach out to you, LinkedIn is probably the best platform for them to find you on. One of the things I can say is I, I'm on. We have a LinkedIn profile, and when you go to try and find us, I'm not terribly active there. I need to figure out how to be more so. But you you have a real active profile there. So anybody with some some questions around the uh, the adoption world, especially, and some of the struggles we have talked through today, in would be well served to, to go and at least find you and, and listen to a lot of the things that you've put up because you share a lot of your journey and a lot of your wisdom on a regular basis there. And I know that that's going to help a lot of people. So that would be a great resource, I think, for people to find you. Is there any, any better place or any other place that people can really find you?
1: Yeah. On LinkedIn is, is the best place to find me. And I will certainly talk to any foster parent, any uh, social workers, that needs some, some feedback. So yeah, definitely LinkedIn,
0: Jason. Great. Great. Well, we'll make sure that that is linked up in the, uh, in the show notes here so people can find you if they, if they need to reach out to you for anything. And um, we will, uh, we'll make sure this gets out so people can, can hear your story. Um, I appreciate your time, man. And your openness and vulnerability to, to share your story when it's not always an easy thing to do.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely so humbled that uh, you guys made me a part of your life, made me a part of your podcast. Can't put a price tag on that. It's priceless. Thank you so
0: much. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Daniel's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest you can reach us at fostercare at uj. No, you'll reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com/groups/ fostercareuj UJ. And don't forget we have a Patreon. You can support our mission there for as little as five dollars a month. It's patreon.com/ fostercarenation nation. The links to everything are in the show notes or on your podcast player. Or you can find it all at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so
1: super awesome. I thank you guys so cool, cool, cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks.